I want to say a welcome to all you parents of our campus outreach students who are joining us this weekend. We are, first of all, let me thank you for giving us the opportunity to minister and love on your young people a little bit. We are having a blast. We enjoy having them each and every summer. As a matter of fact, I pretty much mentioned to Drew, the regional director, if they ever choose not to come to this church, there's going to be five foot three inches of a ball of fire uh, coming after them. I don't know what that would look like, but, you know, might be fun. So we love having you all, and we're thankful that you're down to spend some time with your kids this weekend, and we're thrilled that you're worshiping with us. We're actually starting a new series of sermons that we're going to be doing for the rest of the summer, summer months And it's a set of studies on the book of Psalms. Before we open to Psalm 8 and take a look at the scriptures this morning, would you bow with me for a moment of prayer? We depend upon you, Holy Spirit, to teach us your word, to lead us and guide us into all the truth, to be our comforter, our counselor, the one who takes your word and applies it to our lives and to our hearts. Lord, I'm mindful that you are not far off, that you walk and you live amongst us, and so that you are with us to show us your truth, to guide us into all the truth, to convict, to comfort, to challenge. And so, Lord, may we open our hearts. May you illumine our minds and our hearts. Give us understanding of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, or I think it's going to show up. There it is. Look at that. Just pro- I love magic. You know, it's just kind of like either that or Shane's back there reading my mind. I'm not sure which way, but it just projects up on the wall. This morning, we're beginning our study of the Psalms with Psalm 8. So let's turn our hearts and our attentions to the reading of God's word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, I'm going to have you do something. I wish I was uh, kind of one of these new school pastors that knew how to use PowerPoint better because this would work well on PowerPoint, but... I'm as old school as they get. So look in your bulletin. And this is one of those weeks where I'm going to ask you, before you give your bulletin to Chick-fil-A and try to get whatever discount you get from Bulletin Tuesday or Free Kids Monday or whatever that looks like, you may want to make a copy of this week's worship guide. Because in a sense, it's a little brief outline describing the purpose of the psalms a little bit how, because what we're going to be doing is taking various individual psalms. Can you imagine? There's 150 psalms, by the way. I guess that could be it the rest of my preaching career, you know? Do that till I'm about 70 years old and go from there. But we're going to take a look at a selective bit of psalms, and this is basically a guide 
that will see us through. So somehow, try to keep a copy, bring a copy, or whatever. John Calvin, I don't know how many of you knew, see we have our Westminster Standards, which is our Confession of Faith and our larger and shorter catechism, but John Calvin in his ministry in Geneva, the city of Geneva, Switzerland, wrote a catechism for the church in that particular city. And his very first question was, what is the chief end of human life? Sounds a lot like the shorter catechism. But it says, to know God by whom men were created. So a little bit of a twist in that he makes the emphasis or the focus on creation. The Psalms are the Old Testament churches, okay? So the people of God of the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was the church of the Old Testament, and the Psalms was their expression through worship, through song. Like even when you look at the subtitle, and I'm not sure how you pronounce that word, getith, but... Most of them think in those subtitles, those are liturgical terms where the psalms were used in song as part of the prayers and part of the worship of the people of God. There's a particular study that was written by one of the Old Testament professors at Reformed Seminary down in Orlando, a man by the name of Mark Futado. And Dr. Futado describes the purpose of the psalms this way. He says they are a manual for abundant living. That is, it is a manual for instruction on living the abundant life. If you take how the New Testament unpacks this, Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10, said the thief, the enemy, comes, and what does he do? He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus says, I have come to give you life and to give it to you to the fullest, more abundantly. Which doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to make every one of our circumstances tremendous. It's not this pie in the sky. But it means that you will have life in the context of the ups and downs of life that we live in here. Through our fears and through our doubts, through our joys and through our struggles. Through our cries of praise and through our laments. Jesus Christ has come and the Psalms were in a sense the manual in the Old Testament for living that abundant life. If you have on the back of the worship guide, it shows a little bit of the structure of the psalm. The psalms, when they were completely composed in our current version of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament canon, were divided into five books. Book one, which comprise of Psalms 1 to 41, talk about the inauguration of the Messianic kingship. David features prominently in many of these psalms. He wrote Psalm 8 that we're going to look at in just a minute. Book 2 comprises Psalms 42 to 72, and that is the confirmation of the messianic kingship. Book 3 kind of takes a little bit of a downward term. The messianic kingship is absent from those particular psalms. Psalms 73 to 89 doesn't mean completely missing, completely absent, but a prominent note of them is the absence, which leads, and remember, so this is instruction through all the varied moods of life on cultivating communion with God. Book four then, which is Psalms 90 to 106, is instruction on living with faith, with boldness, with purpose, even when the evidence of everything in our life goes against that. You ever feel like that? Where is God in this particular moment? Where is God with what's going on now? Psalms 90 to 106 basically says God is still king. He is still ruling. He is still reigning in spite of the evidence. 
which leads to the last book, Psalms 107 to 150. And it's within this book that our great Psalm 119 is formed. That's all about living with obedience to the Lord who reigns. And I choose, think Psalm 119 real quick, that talks about love for the law of the Lord. Delight in his statutes, in his precepts, in his regulations. And this is not a legalistic or moralistic type of living. This is knowing that you're a Christian, that you're accepted by God solely by grace, that you're already accepted. You have an utter delight. You know that life comes through the word of God. Think about Peter's confession in John chapter 6, when Jesus is basically asking his disciples, okay, I've told you about how hard life can be. There's the back door. Do you want to leave? He's basically giving him an invitation to leave. And Peter gives the response, and I love this response. He says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I can't help but think that's alluding a little bit to Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. I delight in your commandments. We are going to be taking a look at this through various psalms, looking at how we cultivate communion with God. We're going to be looking at the psalms from a literary perspective, looking at various genres, particular genres of the psalms. Now, what do I mean by a genre? Genre is a piece of literature that is characterized by similarities in tone, mood, vocabulary, phraseology, structure, and so we're going to explore psalms that can be characterized on various headings. The psalms have been called a window to our soul, and the psalmists, whether it's David, whether it's Asaph, whether we're going to meet these sons of Korah, whoever they might be, got these various psalmists that express the moods of the soul, moods like celebration and praise, lament. Think about David in Psalm 13 crying out, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I can't help every time I read Psalm 13, think of Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump. Lieutenant Dan, you remember the, remember the scene where he's on the, on the boat in the storm? I know he's not exactly quoting Psalm 13, but there's a raw expression of the soul. The Psalms do that. They cry out that God is king. And since God is king, they cry out our confidence in God. Think of David in Psalm 23 saying, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. Can you see and feel the confidence that David has as he's bringing forth that psalm? You have wisdom psalms. You have remembrance psalms. And one of the things that we have to be careful of is that the genres of the psalms can be quite fluid. They are not written on tablets of stone. So, for example, even Psalm 8 that we're looking at this morning is both a hymn of praise, and that's the genre, that's the perspective we're going to look at it from, but it's also a wisdom psalm. As David enumerates and he runs through the reasons for, sell, the reasons for proclaiming, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, when he goes through the reasons, reasons he's going to extol the wisdom of God in creation and in the dignity of man. And so it can be looked at under those. Psalm 47 is both a kingship psalm and a hymn. Psalm 45 is both a kingship psalm and a wisdom psalm. So what we're going to do is take a look at a couple different psalms under each one of these literary 
perspective. And this morning we're beginning with Psalm 8. And we're going to look at it from the perspective of how do we cultivate praise in our life? No matter what's going on. How do we live lives? And praise is not just kind of happy, singing, no matter what. Praise is a life of fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, where the glory of God is compelling us to be real, to be authentic, to focus on him. Derek Kidner, who's one of my favorite commentators on the Psalms, puts it this way when talking about Psalm 8. He says, this particular psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be. It celebrates all, it celebrates as it does the glory and grace of God, rehearsing who God is and what God has done, and relating us and our world to him. This hymn, this psalm, is characterized, the movement of it, the mood of it, is exuberant praise of the Lord. We want to ask ourselves the question as we work our way through the text, how do we cultivate that kind of praise? How do we cultivate the glory of God in our lives? And the text reveals two answers for us. These two things we're going to work through as we ask, how do we cultivate communion with God in this area, this mood, this genre of praise? And the two things are to remember the Lord's identity and then to remember our identity. Our identity both in creation and then in redemption or restoration. So remember who the Lord is, and remember who we are in him. First of all, we have to remember who the Lord is. Verses 1 and 9 are, and I heard, I'm not sure, maybe Andrew mentioned this in the discipleship hour class. I think he did. He did it around the Gospel of Luke. You'll see this uh, structure throughout the Word of God. The structure is called an inclusio. An inclusio is... Think of it like a bracket, parentheses. It's things that begin and end a particular piece of scripture. And what the author is doing there is he is communicating what the topic, what the theme is. So if you look at verse 1 and verse 9, you'll have this inclusio. And the inclusio is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David is reminding us here what the theme of the psalm is. And the theme is the majesty, the glory, the beauty, the splendor. How majestic is your name. Now, who is the Lord? It begins, our Lord. And the Lord is the sovereign, the master. But more than that, he's our Lord. Again, Derek Kidner comments, he says, the God whose glory fills the earth is our Lord. We are in covenant with him. His praise is chanted on high, yet acceptably echoes from the cradle and the nursery. It is the theme of the whole psalm in miniature. The end of verse 1 proclaims, you have set your glory above the heavens. The picture is very reminiscent of when Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 went into the temple, and the seraph are flying, and what are they crying out in verse 3? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Picture that scene. Of course, when Isaiah sees the temple, it's filled with smoke. I mean, it is an earth-shattering scene. But he says right there, the whole earth is full of his glory. 
And David says here, you have set your glory above the heavens. God's glory is not distant. It is not far off. It is here. The question is, how do you cultivate it? How does it compel you? How does it strengthen you? How does it move you in your life? I'm afraid we don't always see a whole lot of glory in the lives of the church, do we? I know I have to admit I'm a little bit of ashamed of the fact that I don't think I always cultivate the glory of God in my life. I'm driven by circumstances or my emotions or how things are going. Do I perceive myself as failing? Do I perceive myself as a success? What's going on in my life life around me? I've quoted this before, but somebody who mentored me a long time ago was Jack Miller. Jack Miller, in his writings, through his writings during his sonship course, one of the lines he said was he defined the glory of God this way. He said, the glory of God is the difference. So he says, picture a chasm between what you do naturally, not just your flesh, but your personality, what your natural way is. That's why you can have artificial fruit in your life. What you do naturally... Then there's what you can do by God's grace. So take, for instance, if you're naturally an impatient person, anybody like that? So it's not just your flesh, but I mean, that's your your natural personality. Move out of my way. I'm going to zero to 60 in less than one second. And then all of a sudden, supernaturally, you see yourself being long-suffering. He says the difference between what you do naturally and what you do by God's grace is the glory of God. How many of us are cultivating and seeing the glory of God on a regular basis in our lives? David says you've set your glory above the heavens. It is evident in the creation. It's evident all around us. Are you cultivating, especially, remember, this is not written to non-Christians. This is not written to non-believers. This is the prayer book of the believing church of the Old Testament. So this is cultivating glory in our discipleship, in our lives. How in the world do we go about doing that. Let's try to apply this for just a minute. One of the things I want to do as we go through this study is I want to show some of the intertextual connections between various psalms. It's kind of like, and I'm not sure where Carl went. He's not sitting with you anymore. He was here. Be- Douglas, where'd your father go? He, he dis- did he rapture and the rest of us are, 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 we were all left behind, I guess. I used Carl in an illustration in the first service, was planning on doing it again, and here he's not here to think of But think about how Carl chooses the hymns. He, in a wonderful way, will look at hymns from all over the hymn book. I mean, I don't remember what number exactly all creatures of our God and King was, but in the first service we sang a hymn from hymn number 677. I mean, you want to talk about using the hymn book? So in the same way, we have to use the entire, this is the prayer book. I want you to learn the Psalms. This is the worship book of the saints of the Old Testament. So looking at another hymn of praise is another hymn written by King David. This one is in Psalm 63. And in Psalm 63, 
And this is where reading the subtitles, they're not part of the word of God, but they're instructive. They give us some of the circumstances and the history behind it. Psalm 63 happens to say David was on the run for his life. He was in the wilderness. being. So this is David while things weren't going so well for him. Everybody wasn't turning towards him saying, David, you're our king. We love you. Let's have lunch together. People are going, um, not only do we not like you, we want you dead. And David, I think, has the audacity to write in Psalm 63, verse 3, because your steadfast love, which is the Hebrew word hesed, which is the word that's used for covenant love. So here's the relation. Psalm 8, the end of, in verse 1, says, O Lord, our Lord. Our Lord means the covenant God. Here David is saying, because your covenant love, your covenant faithfulness, because you're our Lord, and he says, your steadfast love is better than life. Yeah, I say that every day. Your steadfast love is better than food, relationships, friendships, my sports team winning. David, while he's on the run for his life, I'm casting a vision for you for your life. While David's on the run, people are trying to kill him. He says, God, your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. And then in verse 5, he says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I love it. David skips the paleo diet. He's my hero. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. How do we cultivate that in our life? Well, we need to understand something. We need to understand how praise and glory works and then look at how it's possible. One commentator I listened to on this said, we have to understand for a second that there is a part of us, a place, a private place, and we especially come to understand what is going on in this inward private place when we're in solitude, when we have nothing else to think about. He says, what do you think about? Where does your mind drift off to? What do you daydream about? Or when you're in trouble, when you're on the run in the wilderness, when you're unhappy, where do you engage? Where do you escape to find your life? Or to put it another way, he says, what is so important to you that if you were to lose, lose it, life would be meaningless? And he goes on to say, everybody is looking at something. Everybody is tasting something. We typically don't call it worship. We may call it daydreaming, we may call it fantasizing, but everybody is doing that about something. And that, what you're doing is you're adoring and your soul is feasting upon it. Your soul is being satisfied. It is on the palate, it is on the taste buds of your soul. It is what's most real to you. And he goes on, as I listen to him, he goes on to say, he says, picture it this way. He says, you might believe that God loves you that his glory is above the heavens. You might be saying that, he says, but take a look at this. He says, compare this. He says, say you have a piece of chocolate, a wonderful piece of chocolate. It's unbelievable, super incredible, super expensive, blows Ghirardelli away. And you go and you put it on top of your head or you hold it in your hand where it just becomes goopy and it melts all over. But when you put it on your tongue, and it's on your taste buds, then suddenly 
It explodes. It strengthens. It tastes good. You get the utter sweetness of its riches. You just don't get it in general. It begins to move your mind, your affections, your will. Everything is engaged. Why is that? It's because it's on the palate of your soul. And he goes on to say, you need to put God on the center of your heart like that. That is what David was saying. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic. And when he talks about the glory of God, he uses a word there. When he says, you've set your glory above the heavens, that is a word that depicts the beauty, the excellence, and the splendor of God. Does your soul find God beautiful? See, and how do we cultivate that in our lives? How can that happen in our lives? You need more than the creation. You need more than the glory or the praise of God in general. You need the glory of God as it's revealed in the gospel. And that means you need to remember, see, the Lord's identity is not enough. You need to remember your identity in him. Verse 2 says, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you've established strength because of your foes. In other words, God is building a stronghold against his enemies through the praise of the most weak and vulnerable and dependent and innocent. It says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. Verse 3, he looks out and he calls, he says the creation is the work of God's fingers, meaning this is not just the transcendence of God. This is the personal involvement, the intricate care. Think of what you do with your fingers. The most delicate care goes into work that you're doing with your fingers. This is not just a big, powerful, deistic, far-off, well, God's out there and I'm living my life. This is a highly intimate, intricate, personal, involved God. And then David says, when I look at all this, when I consider this, when my mind goes to ponder this, and he goes back to creation, the moon and the stars, created and set in place on day four of the creation, David poses by means of a question, marveling that God not only pays attention to, but actively is involved and cares for men and women. He then goes on to say, what is man? And he answers that question in the next stanza of the hymn. This is beautiful poetry, by the way, because the next stanza of the hymn says, you have made him, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned man with glory and honor, and you have given man dominion over the works of your hands. I can't imagine, by the way, a more pro-life text of scripture than this. The dignity, the value of all of humanity that is given here. Humans, their glory are certainly derivative. They're not God. It's less than God. But they still, yet they are crowned. Don't lessen the word of God here, folks. They are still crowned with glory and honor. What in the world does that mean? 
I owe this insight to Richard Pratt, who I was taking a class with years and years back when he was still teaching at RTS Orlando. And one of the things he talked about was how we need to recover the functional, uh, functional use, the functional uh, vocation or mission of what it means to be made in the image of God. And here's what he said. He says, we talk about the image of God, and it's not just that we have various characteristics or qualities. He says, this is true. We're able to think, we're able to feel, we're able to have purpose, we're able to have will, all these things. He says, that's true. But God has given us those qualities, those characteristics for a reason. That reason is because he's given us a job description. And he says, here's what the job description is. Here's what it looks like, especially in light of the ancient culture, the culture that Moses, the writer of Genesis, was giving. Here's what Dr. Pratt says. He explained it this way. He says, in the ancient world, it was common for kings and emperors within and around Israel to be called images of the gods. So the Hittite kings and the kings in Mesopotamia and the pharaohs of Egypt would all be referred to as images of the gods. And they received these titles because, and this is the secular world now of that, but in Old Testament times, it was believed that kings and emperors, remember this was not a monotheistic one, it was a polytheistic. So there were individual gods for different realms. And the kings or the emperors would have a very special role in that world that distinguished them from ordinary human beings. And what was their role? What was their function? The kings or the emperors were thought to stand between heaven and earth, and they had the special task, they had the vocation or the job description of learning the will or wisdom of the gods in heaven and then using their royal power to enforce that will on earth. Dr. Pratt says, in other words, to use Jesus' words in the Lord's Prayer, kings were to learn the will of God in heaven and to bring that will to earth. To colonize earth with the values and the agenda and the purpose and the wisdom of heaven and bring it to earth. And then he goes on to say, Moses, you want to talk about someone who was radical and revolutionary? Moses was radical to say this does not just apply to kings and emperors, but to every human being. That all human beings are made in the image of God. And all human beings were created to be God's representatives. The technical word for that is vice-regent, to rule over the earth, have dominion over the works of his hands. God creates it. He makes this beautiful cosmos. He makes this temple. He creates it to be his home where he intended for him and his image bearers to live together. And he's given us the value and the significance and the dignity and the purpose of managing and running that world, of using all our gifts everything he's given us, those rational qualities in order to envision and make this a beautiful home. That is the dignity of humanity. But of course, what happened? We know that the image of God has been corrupted, not eliminated, not obliterated, but corrupted by the fall and human rebellion. So just like remembering the Lord's identity is not enough, at the same time, remembering our creational purpose is not enough, we need to have that creational purpose restored in us. 
by the only one who was the perfect human being, who lived as the perfect image bearer, to restore the glory of God in us when we become a Christian and we are in Christ. See, we learn the fullest meaning of Psalm 8 when we see its meaning unpacked in the New Testament. As Al read for us in Hebrews chapter 2, we read, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? And of course, what is Hebrews doing? Hebrews is now is taking that Old Testament foreshadowing and applying it to Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, You have made him, meaning Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, in the incarnation, what is the movement of love? What is the movement of incarnation? It is always downward. It is always going to the lower place. Do you know in our relating, we ought to be going down to give up our rights, things that we naturally have rights, to lay them down like Jesus did for the sake of others. That's the movement of the incarnation. God made Jesus for a little while lower than the angels to come and to meet us. You put everything in subjection under his feet. Then the writer goes on to say, now in putting everything in subjection, he left nothing outside his control. And then he says, at present though, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we see Jesus. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, doing what in us? Restoring glory in us. And he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. See, it's not enough. Remembering the Lord's identity alone will crush us. Remembering our creational purpose might inspire us for a while, but we won't be able to keep that up. You need to have the glory of God restored through being attached, through being one, through being united, through the forerunner, the founder of salvation, Jesus By being in him, we are restored to our creation glory. Think about, Andrew mentioned it earlier in the confession. When he talked about when you become a Christian, you are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Glory, do you know what it means to be a Christian? It means that glory is restored in you and to you by grace. So that we can then be called to participate in the mission of God. It's not our mission. We don't have a mission. It's God's mission. And do you want to know what God's mission is? It is to once again make the cosmos, make this world, make the creation his home. It's as John says, and he gets this glimpse in Revelation 21, when he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, now, the dwelling of God is with man. There will be no more crying or mourning or death or pain. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And then he goes on, even all those things are in the future, but he says, what's happening now? I am making all things new. The mission 
has begun now and it will be consummated or completed in the future. And glory restored to the Christian and to the church is to be able to participate through our suffering and through our sacrificial love with Christ in restoring creation. How do we cultivate praise? We remember the story of God. We remember the Lord and his glory. And we remember the gospel, that you are in him, your identity, your dignity, your significance, your purpose in him. Father, teach us to remember. Teach us to remember the good news of who we are in Christ. Teach us to cultivate to, in a sense, learn to have our taste buds, to massage into our souls daily. Not just who you are in your identity, your bigness, your power, your sovereignty, but to remember who we are in Christ, that you've restored glory in us and called us to a glorious purpose, that we participate in and with you in the redemptive, restorative mission of restoring creation. Teach us to cultivate praise in Jesus' name. Amen.